This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill är så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, 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 beat writers in the game Arpon Basu it was a really fun chat there were so many players I wanted to ask him about and I really appreciate him giving us all the time he did to cover all of these Habs past present and future players uh, before we get to that let's of course mention that we are presented by DabberHockey.com the top fantasy hockey website in the world you definitely want to be checking that out every day to see all the creative articles they're coming up with even in the pause and of course I use their tools at Frozen Tools maybe right now you're thinking what do I need hockey stats for but before you know it we Maybe really soon that we're talking about fantasy hockey again, depending on what the NHL does. And so when you're doing your preps for your drafts or for whatever you're going to do, you want to check it out. So DabberHockey.com, FrozenTools.com, they've got the goods for you. But with that, I'm ready to cut over to my interview with Arpan Basu about the Montreal Canadiens. I know you're going to like it. So here it is. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of our Beat Interview Series. Really excited for the one I'm doing today because I have got the editor-in-chief of the Athletic Montreal, or the Athletique Montreal, depending on what <laughs> language you speak, and my friend Michael's favorite Habs journalist, it's Arpon Basu. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you about the Montreal Canadiens. I was you know, trying to think yesterday of what I should ask about them. And like a lot of questions came up, a lot of players who I'm excited about. And then a lot of players that I was like really disappointed in this year. So I'm going to mm-hmm. be curious to get your thoughts on, on all of them. But I guess first, let's talk about the team in general. The Habs like had a nice bounce back season in 2018-19. They had a good record, 44-30-8. They barely missed out on the final wildcard spot. And I'd imagine they were hoping to build on that in 2019-20 and I don't know if people remember but things actually started out pretty well for the Habs like at one point in mid-November they had a 5-2 win in Washington and the Habs were riding a three-game winning streak at that point they sat second in the Atlantic division behind Boston Uh, but that win versus Washington came at a big price Jonathan Drouin who was off to a great start he suffered a wrist injury Paul Byron hurt his knee and the Habs then lost their next game against New Jersey and that started an eight-game losing streak through New through November, and then they suffered another eight-game losing streak in January. And come the time of the NHL pause, the Habs sat with a losing record and another likely long playoffless summer on the horizon. 
which may not be the case anymore. I saw your your article about the potential 24 team thing, but looked like it wasn't going to be a successful season for the Habs. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think went wrong with the Habs to cause them to take such a big step back this season? And like, do you think things would have gone differently if it wasn't for those injuries, or was this team like on track to have the wheels fall off regardless? Uh, no, I don't think they were on track to have the wheels fall off, but they were what they did need was was basically a season of perfect health and what the, the strong season that you mentioned last year uh that's what happened they basically had no significant injuries all season so um you know you saw kind of the best case scenario i should mention that you know the season prior shea weber missed the beginning of the season so obviously that's significant but they were able to weather that storm because they were playing such a good team game and claude julian had implemented a system that that was really working this just high pressure system and, and, and just constant puck pressure and speed and, and relying on four lines to, to forecheck other teams into the ground. And it it really was working. Um, But they didn't have any other significant injuries. And this year, as soon as they had one or two, I should say, even though Pop Byron really wasn't playing that well at the time, he was, he was pretty much a fourth line guy. So really one injury uh, completely derailed the whole thing. So it just shows to what extent, you know, they have some good players and they have a good system. Uh, but you know, the defense is, is not that deep. Uh, and in order for them to be able to play that system, they need all their forwards to be available. Like they need all four lines to be fast and, and have some offensive skill on it, but, but mainly be fast and be able to forecheck and create turnovers and do those sorts of things. So as soon as Drew went down and Byron went down, everyone had to be kicked up a notch in the lineup. They're starting filling with, with a, a parade of AHL guys that that really are, are are AHL players, and it just showed the lack of depth in, in in their in their system, and and it showed the lack of depth of talent on the team. That all it took was one really significant injury in Drouet. Byron is a significant guy, but he wasn't playing very well at the time, and and it just it was like a house of cards that just kind of came down. So, you know, I think there are encouraging signs there for the Canes in the sense that you know if they could build a team that could withstand those injuries, meaning, you know, with some of the prospects that they've drafted the last few years and have guys in the AHL who have NHL futures, as opposed to being more basically AHL guys, um, that could help them. That could help them withstand those injuries because they're inevitable and you're not going to go through a season without them. So, um, you know, that was kind of a lesson in the sense that I think they just came back to earth and just, it's, it was a realization that they just have more work to do uh, to build uh, more depth of talent. It's kind of a weird, I found it strange because the strength of their team is their depth up front at forward, except once you get through those 12 guys, they don't have much depth behind them. So, mm. so they're a team built on depth, but as soon as they lose, like even a sliver of that depth, uh, their lack of support depth, I guess, uh, really exposes them. And that's what happened this year, because as soon as, as soon as Jordan went out, uh, everything just started to slowly fall apart. Yeah, and I guess we'll get to some prospects that we can be excited about to enforce some of that depth. But actually, I'm curious to ask about Jonathan Drouin because he's a player who I've been very curious about because he is a guy who, you know, had this big pedigree, uh, drafted third overall back in 2013. He's expected to be a blue chipper before things went sour in Tampa. And the Habs then gave up a blue chipper of their own and Mikhail Sergachev to acquire Drouin. And, mm. and many of us thought Drouin would be like the centerpiece of the Canadiens offense. And while overall that clearly hasn't happened, Drouin has had a couple of really good strong starts to the past couple of seasons. Like in 2018-19, he was sitting at 46 points in 55 games, which was almost a 70-point pace in February. And then like all of a sudden, his minutes were slashed and he was relegated to the third line and he sputtered the rest of the way, like seven points in his final 26 games. And this past season, he was also, again, started hot, 15 points in his first 19 before this injury. And then when he came back for the eight games, he only had 
no points actually only seven shots so i don't know I, I guess that's a whole separate thing about an injury but i'm having a hard right. time like deciding <laughs> like should we give up on juan or not since he has these stretches of looking fantastic you seem to say i found that he's you know, he was a big loss to the team, though it didn't look like he would have been a big loss when he was playing on the third line at the end of the last season. So what happened last year? And like, what is Joanne's role on the team at this point? Well, I think, you know, the two the two starts are are different. And and here's why. Because last year, last year he was he was effective. You know, they, they acquired Max Domi. They, they took Joanne off center where they had been playing him uh, after acquiring him for for Sergachev. Uh, which was a mistake from the get-go, and everyone knew it was. But but they they needed someone to play center. So then they went out and acquired Domi, who had been playing on the wing in Arizona. Uh, they acquired him for another player who who they couldn't decide whether he was a winger or a center in Alex Galchenyuk. So they acquired Domi and they moved him to center, and that allows Joy to go to to left wing and to play left wing with Domi, who's who's got some sort sort of similar attributes in the sense that uh, excellent puck handler, uh, great vision, really good passer, great speed. Um, and they seem to complement each other really well. And so, you know, Max Domi got off to a tremendous start last year with the Canes and had the best season of his career, 72 points. Uh, and Drouet was a big part of that for most of the season. Then then Drouet just completely fell off a cliff. Like, I mean, his minutes fell because he became a completely ineffective player all of a sudden and could not produce anything. And and so what happened was, and I think this is really, you know, we're not sure yet, but this this might have been the epiphany in Jonathan Drouet's career is that – as he was going through the those the last third of that season, you know, he seemed to realize that maybe he's the problem to a certain extent. He always seemed to like blame other things for why he wasn't producing. And at the end of last season, he came out and there was like a, a, a sea of reporters waiting for him because he just had such a disastrous end to the season. And really when the Canadians needed him most, you know, they were trying to get into the playoffs and they could not count on this guy at all. And he had just completely lost all confidence, was had lost all effectiveness, and and essentially, he didn't abandon the team, but basically did. I mean, his production abandoned the team uh, at a time when they absolutely needed it the most. So, so he came out and he he talked for like forty minutes about about how he's gonna he's gonna find out what went wrong and he's gonna fix it. And he's he's not gonna he's not gonna allow this to happen again. And it was really it was compelling stuff. And it took some courage to come out there and, and, and address it head on the way he did, for, especially coming from a guy who never did that. You know, he never took accountability for his own play and always found a reason for it or an excuse or what have you. So he really fell on his sword and handled it uh, in a really mature way and a really smart way, really. And then, but then he didn't just say that stuff. Then he, over the off season, he spent time, he went to, he talked to Dominique Ducharme, their assistant coach, but he also his coach with the Halifax Mooseheads back, uh, back when he was in junior. Um, and, and they spent time looking over video and Ducharme identified problem areas in his game and what he should do differently. And he spent, you know, many, many days and many, many hours pouring over video over the summer uh, with Dominique Ducharme and came to training camp the next year, like a completely different player. Like it was, it was night and day. Uh, how he played the game like he was being you know instead of sort of looking for for soft areas in the in the, in the offensive zone and, and trying to get lost in the defense and 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 looking for soft spots to spot up and get and get set up for a pass uh you know he was being assertive and he was being he was he made a point of constantly being around the puck uh he was engaging in puck battles he was winning puck battles and he was just a, a generally a, just a more aggressive player and a more assertive player that was really making things happen almost every time he was on the ice. And the one point of emphasis he had was that uh, he, he really emphasized that I want to get, I want to, I want to make a positive contribution very early in every game. He wanted to get him. So his first, first two or three shifts in every game, 
really jumped out at you because they were so different from what we had seen before. Whereas, you know, he was generally a more like let the game come to me kind of guy before. And this year he started, you know, taking it to the game, you know, mm-hmm. like making the game his. So, you know, but it only lasted till that game, November 15th, obviously, because he was injured. And when he came back, he wasn't healthy. Like he shouldn't have been playing really. And, and, you know, he tried to get through it and, and it didn't really work. And, and there was no, it was, it was kind of pointless. It was kind of stupid that he was playing because for all intents and purposes, the Canadians were out at that point, but they just, you know, they refused to admit that to themselves. But if, if the player we saw up until November 15th is actually what Jonathan Drouin is now, then he might come close to fulfilling the potential that made him the number three pick in that draft. But we can't say that yet because the sample size is so small, but the Jonathan Drouin we saw from the beginning of October to November 15th was a very dynamic player, like a, a guy who could really help the Canadians and a guy who could really help, uh, who could really collect some points because that was a really highly effective guy. Uh, but the question mark now is how is this injury going to affect him? Because he was clearly affected by it when he came back. So is that going to affect him long term? And could this attitude adjustment wane at some point? Like, will this will this remain permanent? Uh, it's hard to know if that's the case. It's very interesting. And it's good to hear that the, at the end of the season, it's not like he fell back to the old way. It's just he was playing hurt. Do you think, like, assuming he's healthy, can we, like, assume now Druant's probably, like, the, the plan is for him to be a top sixer on the halves, like, moving forward? Like, do you think he's, I guess you're saying that potentially if he comes back the same way he started this season, he might be able to finally break his career high? Of, like, well, I mean, well, yeah. Well, they would love it. They would love it for that to happen. I mean, the organization, as you mentioned, traded a player that that na- traded a player who plays a position that now represents the organization's biggest hole. Yeah. I mean, they need a top four left defenseman like badly, like really badly. And so they could really use a Mikhail Sergachev on this team. Uh, but they decided, and you know, I didn't disagree with it at the time. I'll, I'll be I'll be upfront about it. Uh, Mark Bergeron decided that that it was okay to trade a, a prospect like that because they were getting a Jonathan Drouin who was 22. He was coming off. Uh, he was coming off entry level. They were going to sign him to a long-term deal. They got him at a decent price at $5.5 million a year. So that if he did fulfill his potential, that would be a great bargain for them. Um, it was a calculated risk. And, and I, frankly, I don't think it was such a bad risk because the reality in Montreal, and people don't want to hear it, but it always helps when you have local kids, local francophone kids playing for the Canadians. When you have a, like a good star player who can speak to their fans in French, it helps. And it's definitely uh, – it definitely – you know, makes joint a little tiny bit more valuable to the Canadians than he would be to any other organization. So, um, you know, is there hope? Yeah, there's hope. Cause, cause the one thing I'll say is that it, it would be, it would strike me as odd for a player to, to make those realizations about themselves and get like a sort of certain degree of self-awareness and then just lose it. Right. Like generally, generally you get more of that as you get older, as opposed to less. So, uh, you know, it was a sign of maturity, and I think he's he's realized how fragile things are, and that that NHL success is not going to be handed to him on a silver platter, and that's a big realization for a lot of junior stars to make. You know, for the number of times I heard Jonathan Drouin talk about what he did in junior as an NHL player, mm-hmm. you know, you just wanted to kind of tell him and say, "You're not in junior anymore." Like that's not how it works, you know. It's like an Al Bundy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it finally that finally dawned on him, and I would suggest that he's going to stick with that. Like he's going to keep that, that mindset. So if he does like the talents there and no one's ever denied that, you know, but, but he's just got to keep that, that attitude and that edge and that feeling, I think 
that this could all fall apart at any moment. You know, I think that's really what happened last year is that he, he saw his own like NHL mortality to a certain extent and he decided to do something about it rather than just accept it. Yeah, it's really cool. And hey, maybe he'll be a good sleeper grab at the end of your fantasy yeah. draft. And you never know. We clearly the potential's there. Uh, on the other side, some players that have been surprising me like in a positive way, I've got to talk about the maybe the biggest bright spot. Well, there's a lot of bright spots that we'll get to, but like the top line for the Habs of Tatar, Gallagher, and Deno look mm-hmm. really good. And like I have to admit, like going into the season, I had an argument with my co-host Brian, like as he was saying that. Gallagher to know Tatar was like the first line. I was like, come on, no, like the Juan Domi line. That's the first line. Those are the real superstars <laughs> on the team. But like clearly this Deneau center trio was the most successful. And the biggest breakout came from Thomas Tatar, who had like already broken his 58 point career high from 2018-19 before the pause. He was already at 61 points in 68 yeah. games. That's a 74 point pace. Yeah. And Kind of like, you know, I just in the last interview we did about the Islanders, we were talking about Brock Nelson and I was telling Arthur Staple, like, I was surprised to see that Nelson did so well. And I wanted to look for reasons why he won't be able to do it again. And like, same with Tatar. It's like, we've never seen Tatar do anything like this. So I was looking and he didn't have an especially high shooting percentage. It's not as if he got like an exorbitant amount of his points on the power play. Like everything looks like this was sustainable and for real. So do I just have to get with the times and expect 29 year old Tatar to continue to be a 70 plus point guy next season as well? Uh, I don't know about 70 plus point guy, but the one thing about Tatar is that he's a 20 something goal scorer. Like he's a consistent 20 goal guy, like at like minimum, you know? And so like, I would think like Tatar is going to settle into a 25, 35 guy, you know, like, so 60 points pretty, pretty consistently, like his, mm-hmm. cause his goal numbers dating back to Detroit. I mean, basically he had one bad year and not even a bad year. He had two bad months <laughs> with the Vegas golden Knights after he got traded a trade that happened because he lifted his no trade clause because Kenny Holland got such a deal for him. I mean, they traded like four draft, like a, like a first and two seconds. I don't, I don't remember what it was, but it was just a massive haul of draft picks that the, that the Red Wings got for him. Tatar lifts his no trade, goes to Vegas. It doesn't work out at all. And he gets labeled as this like bust, you know, like, but it's like, even that year he scored 20 goals combined between the Red Wings and Vegas. Like he's never not scored 20 goals in the season. So that's like Tatar in that sense is money to me. Like he will get you 20 goals. Um, the other stuff comes as a result, I think of, well, first he's a hell of a player. Let's just, let's just get that out of the way. Like he's a very, very good player. Um, is he an ideal top scorer? Like is he, is it, is in an ideal world is Thomas Tatar your, your most productive player? Probably not. You'd like him to be more of a secondary guy, but playing on that line with Deno and Gallagher, what it allows for him is you have Gallagher who, Basically, any line Gallagher will play on will win the possession battle that night, for sure. So you could put him on the fourth line, and the fourth line will be a positive possession nine, guaranteed. Um, just an incredible play driver, and, and his ability to, to control the wall and, and generate shots from in tight uh, is really almost without equal. I mean, Brady Kachuk's probably the closest comparable to him. Uh, oh. Brady Kachuk being you know a lot bigger than him, but they play a very similar game and they have very similar results in terms of generating high danger shots. They're, they're the two best in the league actually. And so you have that, you have Phil Deneau who is starting to play his way into like certain selkie conversations. I don't know if he's ever going to win it, but I wouldn't be surprised if he got nominated one of these years. I mean, he's starting to generate some momentum in that sense. He's an incredible two way player. And, and so what this does, is it allows Sitar to have the puck in the offensive zone often. And he's a high, he's a skilled guy in the offensive zone. He's 
he's he doesn't do anything at an elite level, but he does many many things at a very very high level. Like it's he's a very good shot. He's very elusive. Uh, he has good mobility. He's able to he's able to stop and start very well. Um, carries the puck well, stick handles well, passes well, uh, transitions well. Like he does everything well. He doesn't do too many things badly. He doesn't do anything great, but he's good at a lot of different things. And I think that combination of having that guy with those two other guys who guarantee that he'll get a lot of puck time in the offensive zone has really made for for kind of a happy marriage there. So, and plus on on top of that, if you're talking from a fantasy perspective, he's going to be entering a contract here, and so that is. Uh, that's a consideration, I guess, because he's highly motivated uh, to prove that he's worth another another long-term contract. Right, for sure. If he could put up another 70, even if you say like 60-plus point yeah. season, that really solidifies him. And do you think at this point, this top line of Deneau, Tatar, and Gallagher, are they like super ingrained at this point as the top line on Montreal, like, you know, similar to like a Marchand, Bergeron, Pasternak on the Bruins? Or do you think that Julianne would consider shaking things up? You know, it wasn't the most successful season. Well, I mean... You're talking about Julian, who put that line together that you just mentioned before, right? The Marshawn Bergeron. Oh, right. <laughs> you know, so like he's he is he's a coach who tends to lean on that anchor line, right? Like he 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 did it in Boston for years, and he's done it. And once he found this combination, and it's really funny. Like you know, I'm convinced that that the original combination was going to be Deno, Gallagher, and Pacioretty because uh, if you remember Thomas Tatar was acquired with Nick Suzuki the day before the Canadians open training camp last year. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all that Claude Julien and his coaching staff had spent like weeks coming up with their line mm-hmm. combinations. And then all of a sudden you lose Patrick. like, Oh, we'll just put Tatar there. We'll see how that works. And he basically never left that line. I mean, he left earlier this season, you know, he, he went through this, this stretch where he was taking a lot of really stupid penalties. So he got, he got downgraded for a little bit, but basically that line stays together 90% of the time. Now, the only thing about that line is that not only is Tatar an unrestricted entering a contract year, all three of those guys are entering contract years. So it will all be UFA at the end of next season. So oh, wow. I think the only way that line gets broken up is if one of them gets moved, which is, which is a possibility because, you know, at center, you know, Phil Deno is an excellent two-way center, but are they going to want to pay him like a, a first-line center when they have a Nick Suzuki, they have a Yasperi Kotkaniemi that they're hoping will, will be playing in the top six. You know, I don't know if they, if they, in an ideal world, the Canadians think of Philip Deneau as their first line center uh, when they're when they're a winning team, hypothetically, right? So they, there's going to be a lot of decisions to make because Brendan Gallagher's, you know, he's he's creeping towards 30. He'll be in his late 20s when his contract expires. He's going to want a very long term deal and deserves one. He's been underpaid for. He's one of the most underpaid players in the league. Uh, you know, his his salary starts with a three, so it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense for him. And so all three of those guys are going to be UFA. Phil Deneau is going to be want to be played probably like a Michael Backlund somewhere in that range. So something starting with a five uh, and Tatar is going to want something probably starting with a six. So between the three of them and Gallagher could get something starting with a seven. So you got seven and five, 12 and six is 18. Hmm. So you'd be going from a line that's, you know, that's pretty affordable to a line that's suddenly pretty expensive. And if you, if you want that line to eventually move down the depth chart as prospects start coming in, um, the Canadians are going to need to make some decisions there. So, yeah, I mean, I would say that line is pretty cemented for now, but um, something's going to have to give at some point. And so we're going to see once the offseason comes, whenever that is, um, how many of those guys get, get contract extensions, what, what this whole situation means for their contract situation. So 
there's a lot of balls up in the air on that line. But for now, for sure, and I think in Claude Julien's mind, because that's not Claude Julien's problem, but in Claude Julien's mind, that's his top line. Right. So this is an ingrained line and maybe Julian has to write like the last dance on the blackboard or something mm-hmm. because like, these two yeah, guys might exactly. all be gone. <laughs> yeah. Like Julian might be gone for all he knows. I mean, who knows? It's like it's, there might be That's a lot true. of people gone. Yeah. <laughs> if they don't make the playoffs next year, there's going to be a lot of changes here, I would imagine. Yeah. Well, one player that should help with that, and it's surprising a guy you didn't even mention when listing all these centers, is Max Domi, who's a pending restricted free agent. And he's a guy who just two seasons ago, he was the guy on the Habs that was breaking 70 points, like you Uh said. And yeah, that season, he had a bit of a high shooting percentage compared to his career average in Arizona. But like Brian and I definitely didn't predict that Domi would fall as far as he did this season. Like at the time of the pause, Domi only had 44 points in 71 games. That's like a 51 point pace, basically back to his Arizona numbers. Uh, I read this article that you wrote on The Athletic, very interesting about how Domi was (laughs) jumping around the lineup and like he started centering Juan and Armia for much of the time before Juan got injured and then he went to the wing and like he wants to be center but at the same time like like you said like they've got to know potentially like Suzuki Kakaniemi so what is the plan for Domi and his future in Montreal I guess so yeah in terms of his position and also I'm curious like do you think that 70 point 70 plus point season was kind of like a fluke and this 50 point Domi Uh, is more of the real version no I don't think it was a fluke I think I think you know the context of that 70, yeah, his shooting percentage was high. And at, at one point it was, it was through the roof. Like it was in the high twenties, you know? And so um, it, it slowly started to regress as the season went along. And, and later in the season, he was scoring less often, but, but still a highly effective player. And the difference, the difference, the season before he was playing with, with really good line mates. And this year he, because of the injuries and everything that happened, he just never had a consistent set of line mates. Right. Still had a decent season. Honestly, like people kind of harped on, on his point total and, and, they should. It wasn't as high as the season before, but still pretty good year, like pretty much better than all his years in Arizona. I mean, you know, not that much better, but still better. And and doing this without any real consistent line mates and even real quality line mates. I mean, frankly, as far as, as, far as offensive players go, he didn't really have a chance to play with too many finishers. So he's... The thing with Domi is when you have Domi and Drouin on your team, it's hard not to get the sense that they're very similar players and, and that maybe one makes the other somewhat redundant. Or if you're trying to fill a hole somewhere else in your lineup, you can use one of them to do that because you have the other one. Um, Joy is signed long-term uh, at a decent price. It's a, it's a bit of an overpay right now, but I still think he's, he could play himself into making that a decent contract at five, five, five point five a year. Um, Domi's not signed. No one is quite clear what his intentions are in terms of what kind of contract he's looking for. Uh, and he's, and, and this whole position thing is just weird because Domi knows very well that they have all these centers coming up. Uh, and he seems really insistent on wanting to play that position. And, and, and frankly, I don't think they have room for him at that position anymore. So either he, because the times he did switch to wing, he, he clearly didn't like it, was clearly ineffective, and was and made it obvious they didn't like it. So if he wants to play center, it's, it's, it's doubtful that he's going to get to do it in Montreal. So, um, so again, they're going to have to make a decision on him, but they're going to have to make the decision really soon. The, the good thing is, is that they could sign him to a, a one-year contract. They could even take him to arbitration if they want and get him on a one-year contract and then trade him. And give them and give them a, give another team a chance to decide if they want to sign him long term or whatever, uh, or they could keep him for that year and and because they could still play him at center now, it's not a problem. 
it's just down the road when, when Kotkaniemi's like 21, 22 and Suzuki's 23, 24, like you'd want those guys to be your top two centers. So, um, you know, they're going to have to make a decision here and I'm not quite sure which way they're going to go, but he is easily, you know, among the players that the Canadians might be willing to trade, he would be the one I would think that would bring back the best return. Cause he just, he, he has a very unique package. You got it. You can't, you can't not, discuss his his feistiness and, and just his 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 ability to agitate uh and to get play physical and, and fight on occasion and just create be play that role as well um would be appealing to teams and i would love to see him play in the playoffs he's never played a playoff game so that's kind of one the one benefit of this 24 team play in playoff situation they're ta- kind of talking about is we'd get to see max domi in a playoff environment i personally think he would thrive in it like he just seems to me like the type of guy who would be really good at it uh, but we can't know that until we see it. So the Canadians have a lot of question marks, I think, on him. Uh, and they're going to have to make a decision on him, most likely without those questions necessarily being answered. Yeah, it would be, like you say, it would be interesting to see what he can do with another full season of playing with strong line mates like Drouin yeah. or or someone else. It is a really good point. It maybe makes him someone that could be a little underrated going into next year. I guess if they do trade him, it's not, you know, with Drouin, like you say, they gave up a defenseman who could have been like a cornerstone for them. With uh, Domi, they gave up Galchenyuk, who's not even working out so well anyway. So who cares yeah. if, if it doesn't work out? <laughs> but the irony is that they could turn, they could flip Domi for a guy who would replace Sergachev. Like that's what they, yeah. like that's what, like right now, Domi's the best avenue to getting that defenseman, that that top four left shot defenseman. Max Domi's the player that could, that's that would be probably the be the most realistic path to getting one on the trade market that's effective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a guy like a Jonas Brodin, or there's you know there's various guys around the league who might who might become available. Brodin's just the one that that always pops up uh, because the Wild for some reason seem to want to trade him, but. Um, you know, you're not going to get a Yonis Brodin for, for even a Jonathan Drouin at this point, I think. Honestly, I think Max Domi's more has more trade value than Drouin at this point. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense until Drouin puts together a full good season. Yeah. Uh, so you brought up Nick Suzuki before, and I'd love to talk about him now, like a huge positive from this season. Got to imagine the organization is excited about what they got in exchange for Pacioretty getting Suzuki and Tatar, and especially after yeah. this uh, rookie season for Nick Suzuki as a 20-year-old. He, like, he started a bit slow. He finished on a bit of a slump, but overall still ended with a solid 41 points in 71 games. That's a 47-point pace. And just for fun, I did some math here. Take away his first six games. He's like getting used to the league, okay? He only had one assist in those six games. Take away the final nine games because, I don't know, things got weird there at the end. Uh, If you take out those two stretches and just look at the middle of the season, he had a stretch of 55 games where he put up 39 points. So he was a 58-point pace player for a good chunk of the season as a 20-year-old. And, you know, you can add to that, like he began the season on the wing and then he only really permanently moved to center in, I want to say January. Um, so it took him a while. Like he played, he played on the wing with Nate Thompson on the fourth line for, for forever. Right. Uh, then he was Domi's winger. And then um, I remember actually my story, the night Drouin and Byron got hurt, my story was, is it time for Nick Suzuki to take over for Max Domi at center? Uh, because they needed someone to replace Joy on left wing. So I'm like, this is a perfect chance to just shift Domi to the left wing and put Suzuki at center. It didn't happen for another two months or six weeks or so. Uh, but still, once he was moved to center and was made somewhat permanent there, his effectiveness went through the roof. Like he just became a much, much more effective player. So like, 
it would be interesting. I haven't actually looked at the numbers, but it would be interesting to see what his production at the center position. And I would imagine it would be even better than a 58 point place player. Cause he was, he was just a dynamic player every single night for a stretch of like five weeks. And it was really impressive to watch. So next year, there will be no question of when he comes into training camp that he is a center. He'll be a top six center and he will be given appropriate wingers to play with and, and will play with them from beginning to end. And I really think you're going to see a really productive Nick Suzuki next year because of that. He's going to have stability this season. He produced in a, in a, in an environment of total instability. Like he, he, he wasn't supposed to make the team. He, he forced his way onto the team he wasn't really supposed to move up the lineup. He forced his way up the lineup. Uh, was probably their best power play player, honestly. Uh, so, I think, I think if you know, if you, I think his numbers this year, you know, I don't see him going into a sophomore slump. I might, I might regret those words, but I mean, I, I don't see him being the type of guy who would, who would do that. I just see him growing because. I think he'll be in a very, very stable situation. Like unless he plays his way out of it. And I just don't see that happening either, but it's, you know, anything's possible. I wouldn't, I couldn't have seen just very cockney. having the season he had this year either when, when, when he had a great rookie year last year, but there's just something different about this guy. He's just, he's got a maturity to him, not only to his game, but just generally speaking as a guy. Uh, and he's just such a, just such a great decision maker on the ice that he doesn't get himself in trouble too often. And, and I really think that in a stable situation where he's playing center and has, and has high skill guys next to him, uh, he's going to produce. I really think so. Wow. So the best is clearly yet to come. And you're saying as soon as next season, he's going to blow that 58 point pace stretch, like out of the water. Uh, do you think we can expect some more shots on goal as he gets like more comfortable in the league? That, that was the one, I guess, downside. I saw only fewer than two shots per game on average, but generally players shoot more as they advance from their rookie season. Yeah, I think so. He's not a guy who he's not a, you know, a lot of young players, a lot of rookies will, will pass by default and, and, and will will sort of over, over deferred to the veterans. And he did that a little bit when he was playing with Kovalchuk, like the, the, that little span of time he played with Kovalchuk, he was looking for him a little bit too much. He was kind of in awe. <laughs> we were, we were all kind of in awe of the fact that Ilya Kovalchuk was on the, like, you know, even me as a reporter, I was like, this is really cool. This is Ilya Kovalchuk. Like, this and he was doing really well for that stretch. He was doing really well. And he was just, it was just fun talking to him. Like I just found it fun having, having such an accomplished player in the room all of a sudden for that short, short stretch that he was there. But Nick Suzuki was playing with him. And not only was he playing with him, but Kovalchuk, like every day he would talk about Nick Suzuki. He'd be like, oh, and Susie, he's, he's so good. And he was just so impressed with the kid. But it took him a while uh, to figure out that he doesn't have to just give kill Kovalchuk the puck all the time. You know, like he can make plays himself. Um, and that's natural. That's, that's a rookie kind of. So, yeah, I think the shots on goal will go up as he feels more comfortable as an NHL player and not just. This this kid who 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 forced his way into the NHL and wants to keep all the veterans happy like that wears off. His shot is is top five on the team. I would say among forwards, he's got mm. he's got one of the five best shots among forwards on the team. So for him not to shoot it would be ridiculous. I'm sure the coaching staff was already telling him you need to shoot the puck more. It's just a matter of time before he starts actually doing it. 
Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, it makes him really excited moving forward. Uh, I guess on the other side, you brought up Kakaniemi, who's the other third overall pick on the team. And Kakaniemi, like super young, not even 20 yet, and now has a couple seasons of NHL experience under his belt, or maybe more like 1.5 seasons because he got that first full rookie season. And then this season, 1920, he was only seeing around 13 minutes of time on ice and only had eight points through 36 games and ended up getting sent down to AHL Laval. And I'd imagine like the goal of the demotion was, you know, get him more ice time, help him build his confidence. And he, he looked good, right? He had 13 points in 13 games and the AHL was yeah. playing on the top line. Unfortunately, his season got cut short before the pause. He suffered a splenic injury in early March, I read. So like, first off, how is Kakademi health-wise? Is he looking like on track to be back to 100%, you know, next season? And do you think that a big step forward is coming soon now that he's no longer a teenager? And also, like, I mean, to ask more questions, like, where does he even have room in the lineup? <laughs> like, I don't even understand right. how he could take a step forward if he's behind Dano and Suzuki and Domi. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, well, that's the thing about Domi, right? I mean, is, is, are you, are you going to, are you going to leave Domi there just to make Domi happy, even if that means keeping Kotkaniemi and Laval as a result? Like, that's, the, that's a question the Canadians have to ask themselves, mm-hmm. right? If, now, if they could legitimately feel, and they wouldn't necessarily be wrong, that maybe Kotkaniemi having a full season in Laval, would be the best thing for him. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't think so, but perhaps. Uh, but that's kind of what they would have to do if they decide to keep Domi around. Like that's that's really why the, the Domi situation is so is so delicate because uh Kotkaniemi probably would be best served being the third line center on this team. Um, you know, to answer your earlier questions, I mean, he is he is healthy in the sense that he's been cleared to work out. Um, he won't be cleared for contact for quite some time. I've been told, uh, you know, the Canadians are being very, very Canadian-y about it, but, um, basically, <laughs> you know, it's like a typical spleen injury, you know, a spleen injury comes from, he got injured when he was hit into the boards somewhat from behind. It wasn't a dirty hit and it wasn't even all that malicious. It didn't even look all that bad, but the door was like just slightly ajar when he got hit into it. So the sort of the edge of the boards went into him it was sort of like a blunt force trauma in a way and 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 injured his spleen and so um a spleen injury you know luckily it didn't rupture and it didn't require surgery so that was the good news and then a spleen injury just needs rest like it basically needs rest to he properly heal and properly be prepared to withstand potentially another blow and if you don't wait that long then if you do pretend suffer another blow then it could rupture and then you have a serious problem on your hands so so he won't be cleared for contact anytime soon, but he should be cleared for contact uh, by the time next season begins. Like, I don't think he would be cleared to play if indeed the season resumes this summer. I don't think he would be involved in that. Uh, but, you know, he's back home in Finland, so he was given the green light to leave here, um, is working out there, and, uh, and, and it'll be up to him, basically. I mean, if he comes to training camp and shows that he's ready to play in Montreal, then then they're going to have to make some decisions again. And and frankly, I just don't see how they don't move Domi to the wing to make room for him because that would be the smartest thing. That would be the way to make, you know, the lineup with the most talent. That would be it because Kakanyemi's a talented player. He's really a very good player. He just had a really, really hard luck season. Like he was injured at the t- towards the tail end of training, had a bad training camp, which is on him. Uh, towards the tail end of that camp, uh, he got hurt played through the injury for a month. They shut him down. He comes back. He gets concussed on a nasty hit by Nikita Zdorov. Misses a bunch of time for that. Comes back. Never really gets his rhythm. Gets sent down to Laval. 
is playing great in Laval, is loving life, is getting ice time, he's enjoying the sort of the more hands-on coaching he was getting uh, and more the, yeah, the one-on-one sort of individual instruction and was really enjoying it, sincerely. Like, uh, was really sincere about how much he was liking there, that, the environment there. Uh, and then the spleen injury happened. So, you know, chalk it up. He'd never really gone through a season like that. So you can chalk it up to a learning experience. But it's going to be interesting to see what kind of player we see in training camp. But I would imagine by that point, we're going to see a much bigger kid. You know, it's going to be a stronger kid who has filled out a little bit. Um, you know, his 20th birthday is in July. So, you know, he's got some growing to do. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, which is wild to say about someone who had his rookie season already two years ago. But very cool. Yeah, yeah I remember I saw a stat that he was, when he played his first game in 2018-19, he was like the youngest player in all of professional sports, of like the four major sports. No, he was the first He was the first player in all four professional sports, North American professional sports. He was the first player born in the 2000s to right. take part in a game. Yeah. That's wild. So he was the first player, first player ever to take part of, from the 2000s, from the four sports to take part in a game. That's wild. Um, glad to hear that you're like not discouraged about him because of this rough season. It's funny when you said very Canadian Z about how they were <laughs> handling the Cockneyemi injury right away. It obviously reminded me of Shea Weber who had that injury. Oh, right. Yeah. Where we had like no idea if he was ever going to come back. And they were very Canadian Z about Shea Weber this season at one point where they were like saying he might be injured and might like retire. And the next thing you knew, he was like back later that well, week. Okay. To be fair, the Canadians never said he might not retire. Like the Canadians never said he might retire. What was going on is that the the Canadians created an environment where it was going to be reported that he might like, so this is what happened. So Shea Weber hurts his knee, hurts his, do you hurt his knee or his ankle? Anyhow, I think he hurt his ankle. And so he, he gets injured regardless. And the Canadians don't say anything about the injury. And it's very, very nebulous. They're not answering clothes, not answering questions about it. And so, you know, obviously when this happens, people start digging. And so, you know, Bob McKenzie one day tweeted out that um, that Shea Weber's injury is of you know is of greater concern than the Canadians are letting on, that there could be some long term implications to this. And then a couple of days later, Nick Kiprios comes out and flat out says that Shea Weber might wind up retiring. So this kind of forced the Canadians into action and to kind of respond and be like, okay, this is what's going on. And the next thing you know. I think like four days later, Shea Weber was at practice. Yeah, <laughs> like it was like it was. It was just bizarre, and it's, it's you know, I just, if the Canadians had just been, like, the least bit transparent about it, which they had no reason not to be, uh, you know, we find out through, like, Darren Dreger that Shea Weber has gone to see the foot specialist that had worked on his foot the last time it got hurt when he, when he, had, when he had a problem with a broken foot, um, went to see him to consult with him to see if it was the same thing. He told him it's not the same thing. So then the timeline became very different because their concern was that this injury was related to the previous injury, the one that the Canadians themselves had misdiagnosed for months, and that this guy in Wisconsin, this, I shouldn't say this guy, he's, he's like a world-renowned foot doctor in Wisconsin, his name just escapes me right now, but uh, he's in Green Bay um, and does tons of work with the NBA players, NFL players. Um, he performed the surgery on that, on that foot injury uh, one that the Canadians completely missed. So I think, you know, Shea Weber wouldn't come out and say it, but considering how it went the last time, I can't really blame him for wanting to go to that doctor again just to make sure that everything was okay. And once he did that and the doctor was like, hey, this is just like an ankle injury. You can just treat it like an ankle injury. It has nothing to do with the other one. Then all of a sudden, Shea Weber was like, oh, if it's just an ankle injury, I'll just play on it. 
like no mm. problem. So then it was out of the Canadians' hands. Then it was just Shea Weber saying, "Well, I'm going to play." That's all there is to it. So that was you know that's a very Canadiansy thing as well. But yeah. It's good to finally get the backstory there. By the way, I Googled it. Uh, Dr. Robert Anderson. We got to give him his due. Yes, that's him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he's, he's, he's apparently he's very, very good. And Shay, Shay has spoken quite glowingly about him and how, and how well he did it. And really, frankly, he saved him because the Canadians had no clue what the hell was going on with his foot. And, and again, it, in their defense, it took someone like this guy, like this Dr. Robert Anderson. Anderson. Yeah. yeah. Um, it took someone of his degree of specialty to identify the problem. So, uh, you know, I think that injury kind of humbled the Canadians in the sense that they didn't really know how to deal with it, which was a very rare, uh, sort of a rare type of fracture in that area of the foot, uh, where there's a lot of ankle tendons and there's a lot, there's a whole sorts sorts of things going on, but yeah, the Canadians didn't really handle that all that well. Um, but in any case, you know, I think Shea Weber is perfectly healthy and had a, had a hell of a season, frankly. I, I, I thought his play was really encouraging this year. Yeah, I want to ask you about it, though, because I did a podcast, I guess, a couple months ago now, when the pause first happened, where I split all of the stats for the season into first half and second half and in a spreadsheet. And then I highlighted the players who, like, green for players who did a lot better in the second half and then red for players who were, like, a lot worse in the second half. And Shea Weber yeah. stood out big time as a red boy, as we called him. Yeah, he totally. Had, he had 28 points in his first 34 games and then disappeared eight points in his final 31 games. So I was kind of hoping you'd come on and say, oh, that was the injury and you could just blame it all on that. No. Like, is no it's just like what happened there well the whole team collapsed right i mean basically like it's that's that's a product of the team like don't get me wrong shea weber did not play well during that during that stretch he had a long stretch of games where he was very ineffective um and contributed to the canadians losing a lot of games like basically from that november 15th game on i mean you look at their record from that point onward it's awful like they were 11 5 and 3 on november 15th and they finished what 28, 29 and something. I don't know. They finished just below 500. Yeah. They had a losing record. So their record from November 15th onward is, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of a product of that, you know, like on November 15th, the Canadians led the league in five on five goals. Yeah. And Weber was among the top like defensemen in the league at this point. He was top defenseman. And he was top three, I think in scoring among defensemen. And, And he was just looked like a total, rejuvenated player and was and it was fitting a narrative because it was his first it was the first year that he had a full off season to train since that injury that we were talking about before the original injury with dr robert anderson so this was the first full off season he had to to prepare for a season and he, and, it, and, it, and it looked great uh but when things went south for the canadians like there's all sorts of there's all sorts of reasons to explain that that disparity um you know carrie price his play was erratic but you could say that Carey Price's play was erratic because of Shea Weber and because of Ben Chirot and because of a few other factors. But the fact is, that, you know, the Canadians, you know, Shea Weber is not a player. I don't think he ever was a player that could, you know, single-handedly right the ship of a, of a like right a sinking ship, you know? And, and so as the Canadians started to drop, Weber started to drop in terms of production and everything. And even his goals against numbers were, were very, very bad. I mean, from November 15th on, him and Sherratt were just bleeding goals left, right, and center. So, um, so there's still a question mark there. But you know, uh, overall, considering 
where we were coming from with his injury history, considering that there was a report that he might retire during the season. Yeah. I would say that, oh, I'd say that overall his season was, was a pretty positive one, more so than a negative one. Right. And so do you think it's possible that next season we see another first half 2019-20 Shea Weber show up? Like, could he be like one of the, like a big surprise top, scoring defenseman, say top five defenseman, do you think those years are past him? Like he's too old, too weathered to like have a full consistent season being that offensive. My, my hope is that the Canadians will soon realize that Shea Weber and that Shea Weber himself will soon realize that he and his team and everyone involved would be best served if he just, if he just took less minutes. And so if they played him as a second pairing defenseman, I think he would be more productive I think if they picked his spots with him, if he didn't always go out for every defensive zone draw um, and just tried to, you know, if they just started to manage him a little better and and be realistic about the fact that he's aging and that, that his body's going to, is going to need to get used to a different set of circumstances. I I, I don't see why he couldn't be a very productive player. The problem is is that when you play him into the ground and you play him 25, 26 minutes on back-to-backs, against the top lines, every shift, D-zone draw, every high-leverage situation Shea Weber is out there, uh, and you have Jeff Petrie sitting there waiting to take some of those minutes on, mm-hmm. I don't see why they wouldn't either find – you know, this year I think they found more, more of an equitable share between the two. But if I were them, I would just start giving a lot of those minutes to Jeff Petrie and sort of live with it because Jeff Petrie has his own issues um, when it comes to – you know, turnovers or, or just somewhat less than inspired play in his own end at times. But I think on, on the whole, he's a guy who could take on more of that responsibility and take some of it away from Shea Weber. And I think the Canes would wind up with a far better player. The problem is that neither Shea Weber nor the Canadians are willing to admit that that's the best course of action. And, and that's, so even if the Canadians wanted to do that, I don't think Shea Weber would let them. It's like, he would just jump over the boards and go on. Nice. <laughs> so, right. Uh, but I think I, so yeah, to answer the question, I think, he, he could be a very productive player still. The shot is still there, and it still beats goalies unscreened. He's one of the only players in the league who can beat an NHL goalie with a slap shot with no one standing in front of the goalie. That has value. Uh, but, you know, in order to get into the spots where he can get those shots off, you know, I think a little reduction in his minutes might actually lead to more of those opportunities, ironically. Yeah, your colleague at The Athletic, uh, Sean Shapiro, we were talking about Dallas, and he said a very similar thing about Jamie Benn, like saying he thinks Ben would be really good if he only played, like, you know, fewer right. minutes because, again, like someone older, that yeah, plays a tough game. Yeah. Older, plays a tough game, big body, a lot of miles on it. You know, I mean, it kind of, it, it's not a bad comparison, actually. And it's funny because when, when Shea Weber was in Nashville, uh, he and Jamie Benn had some, like, epic battles. Like, just yeah. I watched some video. I did, a, I did a feature on Weber early last year, and, and I talked to Jamie Benn about him. And it was crazy, like how, like how, how, with what kind of reverence he talked about Shea Weber. And then I went back and looked at some of their matchups and saw some video, like it's vicious games, man. Like, honestly, like just nasty <laughs> stuff between these two guys. But like both of them, like with huge smiles on their faces, you know, like they're both BC boys. They like that stuff. But yeah, it's not actually not a, it's not a terrible comparison, even though they play different positions. But, um, you know, the wear and tear that they've taken on so far. Uh, you know, a step back could lead to two step forwards for both those guys. 
Yeah. Well, maybe if one of them takes the first step, the other one can follow along. Uh, but you brought up <laughs> Jeff Petrie. I wanted to ask about him. He really kind of came out of nowhere. Like when Shea Weber got injured back, you know, in 2017, 18, and then again in 2018, 19, it was Jeff Petrie who stepped up big time. Like he had never been more like when he had his 28 points in 16, 17, that was his career high with Montreal. And then all of a sudden Weber goes down. And next thing we see, Jeff Petrie is like a 40 plus point defenseman. And even this season when Weber was healthy and in the line, well, we don't know. <laughs> he was in the lineup anyways, <laughs> but Petrie again had a 46 point pace going into the pause. So like, first of all, like, do you have an explanation for like how Petrie Petrie went his whole career under the radar like he did before this breakout over the past three seasons. And then, like, should we expect this to continue, especially if we're expecting or hoping that Weber maybe takes a decreased role at some point? Well, I don't know. I mean, all I'll say is that since that that first season you were at 2016-17, was it? I mean, he's he set a new career high in each of the last four seasons, and he was on pace to do it again this season. So mm-hmm. it was um, you know, he's talked about his time in Edmonton, like he, like Edmonton never, never trusted him in his own end. Um, they saw him as a soft player who wasn't physical enough for a guy that's that size. They thought he should be a little bit more tough to play against, quote unquote. Um, but, you know, I mean, incredible skater, uh, high end offensive instincts, uh, and, and just really smart offensively and smart in transition. Yes. On occasion, he he has a, a screw up in his own end, or a screw up in the neutral zone that leads to an odd man rush. He does do that from time to time. Uh, but if you look at the the body of work as a whole, uh, you know the positives far outweigh the negatives in his game. And and you know he's another guy who's entering a contract here. Uh, you know oh, they no. have <laughs> yeah yeah they have the, their entire top line: Jeff Petrie and and Armia and are Dome. all UFA. Yeah, well, those five are UFAs and Domi's an RFA this year. And those wow. five guys are UFAs in 2021. So, you know, they're going to have to make a decision. But I mean, Jeff Petrie has just, I think, year after year shown, given no indication that he's slowing down. He's getting up in years. He's hit, starting to head toward his mid-30s. But I think, you know, the Canadians giving him one more contract would make a whole lot of sense because he really enjoys playing here. He's a really effective player. And, you know, age or not, I just don't see how they would replace him. Like he's one of the most irreplaceable players on the team because there's, there's no real, there's no real pipeline of right side D coming. Uh, you know, I mean, Kale Fleury's there. They have a couple of guys, you know, no Jules, they, they have a few options, but um, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet against Jeff Petrie breaking his career record again. <laughs> oh, wow. So maybe, maybe he'll hit 50. Maybe he'll fit. I don't know if he could, because every year I think he's not going to do it, and then he does. So I'm tired of betting against him. So I would say, you know, but, you know, I think mid-40s is a pretty reasonable expectation for him. Like, it's not – it wouldn't be unreasonable for him to repeat what he did this year. Well, that's great to hear. And, like, good for him to have, you know, this bounce – or I don't know what you'd call it, like, not bounce back, but, like, you know, a new life, new lease on life when he finally got to Montreal. I, I You've given me so much good content here, and I'm looking at the time go by, and I have to get to the goaltending here because time's been sure. flying – I want to talk about Carey Price for sure. It's not long ago that we were looking at him as the clear, like, best goalie in the world. That's the phrase that's been thrown around about him. Best athlete in the world, my friend Michael, who I referenced before, would call him. Uh, it goes amazing <laughs> seasons. He had, like, a bunch of seasons in a row in, in the mid-2010s where he was putting up, like, 925, 932. Like, his save percentages were otherworldly. But then, like, things really fell off for Price in an injury-riddled 2017-18 season. And then in 2018-19, he looked 
a better, like not as good as his his prime years, but he had a strong second half, ended with a 918 save percentage. But then this season, he was back below 910 and 909 save percentage in 58 games. But of course, the big question to me is like, how much of Price looking human in these past few seasons is his fault versus like the fault of the Habs, which I think you you brought up and just like not having strong defense because it's I'd imagine it's not a coincidence that he started to fall off right after Andre Markov left the team. Yeah. So like, is Price still amazing and he's just in a bad situation? If he was on Boston, he'd be doing better than Tuka Rask. Oh, you see, like that's an interesting question because if you're saying is Price still amazing, but he's just on a bad team, I would say no, he's not amazing. He's still very good. Um, but is the play in front of him impacting his results? For sure. Uh, but he goes through straight. He's, each of the last two years, he's gone through a stretch in November where he's just flat out bad. And I don't think anyone could deny that he had a bad month in November this year and he had a bad month in November last year. And they, they fell at the same time and they kind of derailed. Like, well, the last year it didn't derail the season because the Canadians were able to outscore sort of his mistakes. This year, it really kind of helped derail the season. Like, right when they needed Price to kind of carry them for a bit, when Joy and Byron got hurt in that game, that's when his game went south. Right. And, and it really, really hurt the team. Uh, but the, the Bruins question is fascinating because, you know what? I think he could, but not for the reason you think. Like, I think he would be as good, if not better, than Tuka Rask in Boston because Tuka Rask has Yaroslav Halak. And that's what Carey Price needs in Montreal. He needs... Obviously not Yaroslav Halak because that would just be too, that would be too weird. But um, <laughs> he needs his own Halak. He needs a guy who can play 30, 35 games and be credible and, and have the confidence of his teammates and, and, and give, be a real viable option as, this, as a number two, which has been really the biggest failing of the last three years for Mark Bergevin, not maybe the last two years for Mark Bergevin, has been, um, has been his inability to find a backup, an adequate backup goalie for them. You know, Antti Niemi gets gets really salvaged off the off the trash heap two years ago or three years ago. Finds his game in Montreal, has his old goalie coach Stefan Wait from from his Chicago days, and looks really good. And the Canadians take like a few good months and say, "Okay, well, this must be our guy." And they huh. sign him to be the backup again. Has a terrible season. Is probably the biggest reason the Canadians did not make the playoffs last year was anti Niemi and not only anti, but not anti Niemi. It was the fact that Mark Bergevin didn't get them a better backup than anti Niemi. Cause mm-hmm. I think Carrie price Carrie started at one point. He started 20 out of 21 games. I want to say like in February and March last year. And you know, it was only when it became clear they weren't making the playoffs that he sat And this year, same deal. He played every game. He played in back to backs and it wasn't until they were practically mathematically eliminated uh, that he finally sat down. And so you know, the, the Tuka Rask mention is, is uncanny because, you know, I know you were asking because is, if Price plays behind the Bruins, would he be better than Tuka Rask? I don't know. I think Tuka Rask is a damn good goalie. They're probably pretty – they're probably roughly equal in terms, of, in terms of talent and effectiveness. But would Carey Price be way better with a goalie, a backup goalie like Tuka Rask has? You better I – would, I would really think so. And, and, and the, the unfortunate thing is that we don't know because the Canadians have never provided him with that. Right. So I think it's really a priority this year for them to get a really competent backup goalie, and I think they're actually willing to pay for it. Because the big problem with Carey Price is that his contract is so massive, the Canadians have a hard time stomaching paying his backup a lot of money as well. So they, they put like a budgetary limit on that position almost on principle. Like it's almost like, well, we're paying him so much, we can't pay his backup 
three and a half million if we're paying him ten and a half million. So, but I think they've realized the error of their ways. Like they're basically they're not getting the most out of that ten point five million dollar investment because they're not spending money on his backup. And you know, we wrote a piece earlier this season, like earlier this during this pause, where we compared it to basically we compared it to buying a Ferrari, but using regular unleaded gas hmm. and using replacement parts and, and, you know, and, and not replacing the tires when you're supposed to and, and not, and, and driving it around all winter, you know, like it's, <laughs> it's basically what they're doing to carry price. So not to carry, you know, carry price, I think should take some responsibility for his play, but the Canes have not helped him uh, nearly as much as they should have. Yeah, it makes sense. I remember this past season, whenever Keith Kincaid got a start, it like felt oh, like such God. a guaranteed loss day. Like, go play daily fantasy and like bet on all the players that are playing yeah. against the Habs that oh, day. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It was a to- and it was, and it was just so predictable too. And and the thing, you know, like and, and the Canadians were so close to having Curtis McElhaney, and, and you know, not that Curtis McElhaney is this this, this godsend of a backup, but far more competent backup than him. Yeah, solid. And, you know, the, the hill the Canadians died on there was that they didn't want to give him a second year. So, and, and, Frank, and frankly, the Canadians were really close to signing him. Uh, and then Tampa swooped in at the last minute and offered the second year. So he went with them. Mm. But it was really, it really came down to that. And look at, like, this would have been the second year of the deal. And the Canadians are in the market for a backup bull again. Yeah, so, so it's like, what was the point? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, they signed a guy, Vasily Demenchenko, out of the KHL recently, and they have this 20-year-old Caden Primo in the system who's mm-hmm. been playing with Laval the past season, had a 908 save percentage. Is it, like, do you think one of these guys is going to, uh, or, like, is one of these guys in the plans, or do you think it's like they are going to go, it sounds like you're saying they're going to go find someone else in free agency to be the backup goalie? Oh, I think I think they're going to find someone else. Like, like they if they enter training camp, with with these with the two guys you just mentioned and Charlie Lingren, who's also in the picture, if they enter training camp with some sort of battle between those three guys for the job, like it would just be like, you know, it would be the epitome of of like of insanity, where where insanity is repeating the same thing and and expecting a different result, right? It's like it's so the goalie market is so flush this summer with backup options. Uh, they have money to spend on a one year deal. Uh, now I just mentioned all the UFAs they have on their team. So they don't, so now it actually does make sense to stick to a one-year deal because uh, they might not have the money next year, but they have it this year. So they could overpay for a backup if they want. If they want to give Robin Lehner $5 million a year, they could do it. Oh, that'd be huge. You know, like, I don't think they will, but they could. I don't think Leonard would like that. He wants to finally be a starter. Yeah, I don't think Leonard would like that either. But I'm just like, you know, all those guys, they have so many guys to choose from. Like if Anton Hudobin feels like playing mm-hmm. a year, behind Carey Price and getting a lot of minutes and, and, you know, I don't know, experiencing playing in Montreal or whatever. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's people, there's goalies that could be available on the trade market. Antti Ranta in Arizona. I'm sure that they would, they wouldn't mind cutting ties with him. The, he, they are suddenly a cap team and he, he takes up a lot of their caps. So uh, there's a situation there that maybe the Canadians could take advantage of Jake Allen in St. Louis uh, who played his junior hockey in Montreal. I mean, there, there might be an opportunity there. So there's a lot of ways for the Canadians to go here, but the one thing they can't do is, is just is just sit back and 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 let the situation solve itself because because everything that they've tried uh, hasn't worked and and they're like basically wasting their money on Carey Price as long as they don't solve solve this situation. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Hopefully they get someone good. 
Okay, one other prospect I want to bring up. We got a lot of listeners who love the prospect talk, and we got to talk about the 2019 15th overall pick, Cole Caulfield. He spent this past season playing for the University of Wisconsin of the NCAA, and he led his team in scoring with 19 goals, 36 points, and 36 games ahead of another prospect we talked about with uh, Lisa Dillman about the Kings, uh, Alex Turcott. So he's yeah. better. There you go, lock it in. Better than Alex Turcott already. <laughs> uh, so yeah, got to imagine the Habs are happy with what they saw out of Caulfield this past season. Do you think he gets a shot with the big club? In 2021 or are we expecting at least another year in the minors first it's hard to say i don't know i think i think there is some there's a reasonable expectation you know he didn't come out and say it and the canadians haven't come out and said it but i would be stunned if he didn't finish next season in montreal like that's that's really what i see happening depending on how next season plays out if university of wisconsin even has a season uh and whenever the next season starts i mean who knows if if you know, if the NCAA doesn't get back up, back up and running in time, and the, the NHL doesn't start until December, I mean, I don't know. It, it's it's not inconceivable to me that he could just sign a contract and start next season in Montreal. But it's, um, you know, the Canadians did want him, and not only the Canadians, his own coach, his own dad. I mean, there's like, there's you know, his all sorts of people around him really were encouraging him to go back to the University of Wisconsin for a second year. Uh, you know, but you see your your buddy Alex Turcott signed with the Kings. Uh, Keandre Miller, who went back for his second year at Wisconsin, but he also signed with the Rangers after the season. Um, and, you know, he he had set as his goal to sign at the end of the season, and he really wanted to do that. But, um, you know, I think there's I think there's room for him to to learn and get stronger. Like, he's going to need to put on some some muscle to be able to compete in the NHL. But I think when he gets signed – he's probably going to come straight to the NHL. I'm not saying that he won't go back down to Laval at some point, but I would be, I would be shocked if he does not start his career in the NHL. That's, that would be my opinion, but I don't know. It's, mm. it's hard to say, but you know, I think that he will be given every opportunity to do so because he, he represents, he's a finisher. The Canadians don't have many finishers in their system. He is a very, very, very elite finisher. And so they will do everything in their power to get him, you know, he makes the, per- he, he seems to be a perfect complement for Kotkaniemi. He's a righty shot. Kotkaniemi is a lefty. Um, Kotkaniemi likes to dish the puck. Caulfield loves one-timing pucks and is, is an excellent finisher and is truly elite at finding dead areas in the offensive zone. It's, he has just this innate instinct and knack of finding spots to score and doing so undetected, even though he's the best scorer on the team. So, um, you know, I, I don't, I can't predict for sure what's going to happen so far in the future, but I would think that the Canadians will be inclined to, to, to give him a shot in the NHL before making the determination whether he should go back to the Laval or not. Yeah, it's very exciting with all like Suzuki and Kakniemi and Caulfield, like this bright future for the Haz. I guess we'll have to see, you know, if they could fill these holes, like you said, but it seems like this could be a strong team if they could stay healthy and all the pieces come together. Uh, before I let you go, one question, let's wrap up here. One question we've been asking sure. all of the beat writers in this series is if you had to pick one Montreal Canadian that you expect to be the biggest like positive surprise next season, someone who will exceed expectations and then someone who maybe will be the biggest disappointment. We're expecting bigger things and what he'll end up providing who would your picks be uh well see one guy that i um that i still feel has offense in his game and that a lot of montreal fans have kind of given up on is arturi lekanen oh yeah uh second round pick really high-end chance creation scoring chance creation possession numbers incredibly good defensive player 
but just lacks finish around the net. I just, I just, I don't know why, but I, I really believe in this guy. I really like his game personally. I believe in him, and I think that he's going to figure it out at some point. I, you know, to say next season, I'm not sure, but at some point, this guy's going to score 25 goals. I'm, I'm really sure of it. Um, so that would be my my sleeper, I guess. Um, as for the the warning sign, I just I feel like Phil Deneau's position might be precarious mm-hmm. on that line. Uh, so if the, he's ever taken off that, and Nick Suzuki, like honestly, Nick Suzuki plays a sound two way game for a rookie. Like he will eventually grow into a player who can play against those top lines and be responsible and do a lot of the things that Philip Deneau does, but with better, but with more offensive upside as as a high skill player. Uh, so I would say that Philip Deneau risks changing roles. And so if there's one guy who might wind up being a disappointment production-wise, um, it might be him, and he might settle into more of a traditional checking line center role. Right, and then he loses that 50-point upside he has That's like, it. to Tatar and Gallagher. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, Arpon, thank you so much for all the time you gave us. Like, I feel like I could just keep talking to you about the Habs. It's such a fun <laughs> team to talk about, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, is there obviously people should be following you at Arpon Basu on Twitter and read your articles on the athletic. Is there anything else you want to tell people to take a look at before I let you go? Well, I just, you know, if you haven't subscribed to the athletic, you can go to uh, the athletic.com slash athletic support, which is the name of my podcast that I do with my content today. But um, that is a, that is sort of a promo code that gets you 40% off your first year at the athletic. So if you do want to come over and read, uh, you can get 40% off your first year with that promo code, theathletic.com slash athletic support. Cool. Okay. I'll link to that also in our show notes. Awesome. So thanks so much again for coming. Have a great rest of your night. And according to this article I read recently by you, uh, I'm hoping the Habs don't make it to this 24 <laughs> team thing so they can be well, ready for next well, Hopefully, season. Hopefully they get their heads on right and just make it a 20 team thing. Cause that's, that's the, that's the model that makes the most sense, but we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I'm sure it'd be exciting for Canadians fans to have something to be to root for and the possibility of something, but uh, they'd probably be happier with the, the eighth overall pickets draft. <laughs> I just would be happy to have like one week of hockey action just so I could settle my fantasy leagues. Like be like, okay, this is the final playoffs. Whoever has the most points wins. And then I don't have to have a live in purgatory like we are. That's right. Yeah. That's, I hadn't even thought of that. I'm not a fantasy guy. So yeah, there must be like so many people like just dying to, to see what happens at the end of their season. Yeah. Most of the leagues we've been running for the podcast are in the semifinals right now. So I just need two oh, weeks, do great. the semis, do the finals. And then, you know, whatever happens in the NHL, you know, they could figure that out. They could have the COVID cup as Matthew Shane called it on right. <laughs> all right thanks so much again Arpon have a great rest of your night okay thanks Lan, for having me thank you so much again to Arpon Basu for joining me to talk halves for this past hour I had a blast and I hope you did as well uh would love to hear from you if you like the show tweet at us at keeping Carlson let us know what you think I'm gonna tweet out this episode Probably it's the tweet is already out tagging myself at our podcast. Let us both know what you thought of the show. I'm sure the beat writers that we interview would love to hear your kind words. And of course, if you haven't noticed, most of the beat writers we've been interviewing are from The Athletic because that's the source of some of the greatest hockey journalists out there. So yeah, check out athletic.com slash athletic support to support Arpon and the other beat writers work. And no, they're not a paid sponsor, but I I really like having access to this great site and all these interesting articles. Uh, If you want to support our podcast for only a dollar a month, so basically nothing, just basically to show you us that hey i'm here and i like the show we'd love for you to sign up and become a patron of keeping carlson over at keeping carlson.com slash patron you get to feel good that you're supporting these 
eight interviews a month <laughs> that we're dropping. And also you could join our Facebook group and we have like our monthly patron cast and some other perks. So check it out, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. They also wouldn't mind a five-star review on iTunes, but I think I've asked for enough. So let's cue the outro music and I'm going to go ahead and read you the credits. And here they are. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fans Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. Logo art by Brandon Weeb, outro music by Pat Roach, and it was researched with help from Dauber Hockey's Frozen Tools, Hockey Reference, The Athletic, and of course, mainly the analytical mind of Arpon Basu. That's at Arpon Basu on Twitter. That's all I got. New Jersey Devils are coming next. And until we get there, keep on keeping Carl Song.